Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is brought to you by Pucker Nighttime Teas. Using traditional Ayurvedic principles and medicinal grade herbs, Pucker Nighttime Teas are designed to enhance your body's sleep cycle. Now available in Nighttime Berry. Nourish your sleep with Pucker Nighttime Teas. Hello friends, this is the Dumbo Feather Podcast, featuring conversations with extraordinary people who are shaping pathways for a hopeful future. Our frontman this episode is rocker, activist and former politician Peter Garrett. For the past few months at Dumbo Feather, we've been exploring how we can radically pivot some of our most fragile systems in order to build resilience for generations to come. With Peter, we talked about the role of culture and the arts in enacting change and how we can infuse our systems with integrity. I love this quote from him. He says, We need idealism in all its shapes and forms, and we need the delivery of change that comes from awakening idealism. For those of you who don't know Peter, he is a member of one of Australia's most successful bands, Midnight Oil. They've been around since the early 70s, and recently released an album called Resist. He's also served as Environment Minister in the Rudd Labor Government, and been a long-time advocate and campaigner of a range of issues, including human rights and climate change. He spoke with our contributor, Mike Bartlett, in February 2022. You've got the new album about to come out, the tour's about to begin. Is this the exciting part? Do you enjoy this part of the process? It's always exciting when one's out, to the extent that you still get the frisson happening when you've had lots of records out. Yep. But particularly in this case, because it was recorded a couple of years ago, because of COVID, we really just had to bite our lip and hold our tongue until today. We wouldn't have wanted to wait much longer. In terms of preparation for the tour and those sorts of things, you know, we've gone from the stage of essentially being a do-it-yourself outfit where we were pretty hands-on on many aspects of our career. I think our management would still say we are very hands-on, but yep. we know what we want and we're prepared to dig in and make sure that it happens the way that we want it to. But we've got very skillful people who work with us and for us. I'm not giving a whole lot of thought to that other than just always think trying to come back and pretend that you don't know anything and look at it as though you're starting out afresh, which is hard to do, but I think it's still an exercise worthwhile to work whether you're missing something in the way that we're setting up the album and the shows and also what do we want to do when we're up there? I mean, in one way, it's pretty straightforward. We just want to play the songs and if you let the alls loose on the stage, that's what they'll do. They'll play. Yeah. Are you still surprised by finding new ways to do things at this point of your musical career? I'm not sure that it's new ways to do it. I think it's just learning to let go of the things that don't necessarily help. And that's partly about being playful and as teenage-like as you can get at this stage. 
we're obviously children of the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and we're in our 60s. A lot of our peers are retiring, and we're still playing music, and people are looking on slightly askance. <laughs> well, you're not just playing new music. You're not doing the reunion tour. You were writing new music. No, you're no, still no, putting... no, we've got new music as well. So yeah. I think that you've got to try and get, and then forget it, is not to get too fixated on minor details or not to project too far into the future. Yeah. Part of throwing people onto a stage and playing a bunch of songs and doing it with an audience is just to see where it ends up. And you don't want to overplan any of that. You want some spontaneous combustion. Just got to find the middle ground there, which we're doing. Sure. And we're spending quite a bit of time here on just making sure the production's where it needs to be, particularly the screen projections, which have got the images and sometimes some of the themes and messages that accompany the songs, just getting that in its right place. So it just works as a bit of a nice partner to what we're doing on stage. Okay. I would like to talk a bit about themes and messages. This next issue of Dumbo Feather is about what we're calling systems change, how we can bring about rapid, wide-scale environmental repair, ideally in the next 10 years. So I'd like to talk about your way that you've engaged with environmentalism and the system. But when we spoke briefly before, you said midnight oil are not a propaganda machine. Do you think there's a tendency for people to see the oils like that? I don't know. Some people might, some people may not. We're not particularly influenced by how people see us. We're mindful of it. It's not as though if someone raises something legitimate to us, say, for example, I went to one of your shows, you know, someone treated me poorly or whatever, but clearly it's mm. a human rights issue or a justice issue or a fairness issue or it's a real issue. But in terms of perception and reaching a value judgment about the work that somebody does, mm-hmm. we've got critics on one hand and fans on the other and everybody else in between. What we know we are, though, is we're deeply serious about both our music and also about uh, the things that are going on around us, and quite often we are writing about that. Mm-hmm. We're not expecting people to take it on face value because we're not trying to persuade them of anything other than the fact that this is how we feel and what we think. And then whatever you do when you walk out the door is your own business. But we, of course, hope that it's making a bit of a difference to you. So it's just about you speaking your truth and allowing others to take what they can from that. Totally. I do feel that in the, perhaps in the 80s particularly, I guess for things like Live Aid, Band Aid, there was an idealistic streak in rock and roll, a sense that rock and roll could really change the world. Did you feel that idealism? Not in the way that it was expressed there, although hats off to everybody for having a go, whether it was Bono and Geldof or people down at the local club on a Saturday night. We need idealism in all its shapes and forms, and we need the delivery of change that comes from awakening idealism. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, the bigger question lies around actual focus on something where you believe that your voice is a part of the soundtrack for change. If we're then able to, in a very nuts and bolts way, provide some level of assistance, maybe it's helping people out with a little bit of money, maybe it's doing a benefit concert. Maybe it's promoting something through our own media channels. Then, of course, do that. And lots of fans do that and performance. And then it's about speaking to it and acting on it in your own life as you see fit and as you have space for, but not seeing it as a great hero project. If you see it like that, it's not going to last a distance. You just have to do it in a way that is consistent in your own working life and makes sense to you in your own working life. And in our case, it's true to what we think Midnight Oil is and what Midnight Oil's always done. Now, occasionally we're going to hit the wall and fall over and occasionally it's going to sound very preachy and a bit more predictable. Other times it can be audacious and can move the needle. There are no set rules around any of this. It's just being in there and having a go. Right. So you're talking about your broader impact rather than just the music itself, your art itself. Do you feel that art on its own does play a role in changing or has some kind of duty perhaps to change the broader systems? 
Art does not have a duty to do anything other than be art. Let's not pretend that it's simply the creation of work about something will change things. People change. The important part of the equation is that if people are influenced by art and then change, then art can do that. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Mm. I wonder if that is changing slightly, or at least the expectations around artists is changing slightly. It does feel that in our social media age, quite often it's the political merits of a work that are read first. The kind of what was once subtext is now read as the text. It's often the first thing that people want to talk about. Are you aware of that? Do you feel that there has been a change in that way? I think you're right, and I think that the extra step that people quite often take of simply only analysing the art from that point is extremely self-limiting and eventually will end up with very sterile art because art's not to be put in boxes. Mm. Judgments on the basis of a political reading, I think, ultimately are futile. If the work itself doesn't stand up, if the work stands Mm. up, then, yeah, by all means, figure out what it's about and be shocked or angered or inspired. Mm -hmm. But don't pretend that simply because the work is about something that everybody thinks at this point in time needs to be spoken about, notwithstanding its great importance, close brackets, (laughs) people are entitled to do it. Of course. It doesn't make it good art. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I find that shift interesting because I think historically there's been a bit of a cringe factor from some rock fans and critics and journalists about rockers who open their mouths about politics you too, for example, are often mocked more for their opinions than their music. Where do you think that comes from, that sense that artists shouldn't have an opinion or shouldn't be loading rock music with political content? Well, it comes from a couple of places. In our own country, it probably comes from the twelve poppy syndrome and the fact that we're quite happy for celebrities to essentially be airheads. We're not challenging us about much other than kind of sneakers that we might buy. But when they do challenge us about something that we feel even a slight residual sense of guilt about, then, of course, we hate them for it. Then I think it's pretty hard for rock stars to preach things like equity and third world empowerment, when apart from saying it, they don't actually do anything about it. In our case, it's always been something which we've been very clear about. We're not saying this to you because it's the right thing to say. It may be the right thing to say at this point in time, but it may not. Hmm. We're doing it because this is how we feel. And because we're serious about who we are and the music that we're making and the kind of band that we are, then if we get a chance, we'll do something about it. And that's been the case of our career all the way along. We've now been around long enough, unfortunately, or fortunately, to be able to see waves of, as it were, political fashionable awareness amongst artists and through culture, which have then gone off and people have gone back to doing what they did before. And for us, that's nowhere near good enough. We've got to make the change and continue to live it. Much better to do it and not talk about it than to talk about it and not do it. Right. To me, a rock star is the element of the trickster or the jester. Rock stars are stirrers, essentially, able to poke the system, poke at institutions. I think of your performance at the Sydney Olympics, for example. I think that was a really powerful piece of activism, but also seemed a wonderful example of stirring as to poking the public consciousness, poking our leaders for a cause. Do you think that's true, that the rock star is a stirrer? I don't think rock stars are normally sterile at all. I think they're usually pretty conventional. Okay. I mean, I don't even actually really know what a rock star is. We've never thought of ourselves in those terms anyway. I mean, let's look at rock stars who people tend to look up to, maybe even worship. Mm -hmm. John Lennon, Bowie. Bowie was a chameleon character who produced wonderful music, flirted with fascism, spent more time thinking about what he wore than who he was helping, and wrote songs which, whilst 
absolutely wonderful and brilliant. Really didn't say that much except about what was going on in Bowie's head at the time. The fact that Give Peace a Chance is Leonard's legacy is a wonderful thing because it's a great song. Someone who is a long way away from being peaceful at all. Mm. So are we talking about the icons or are we talking about the people? This is the challenge in this discussion. And you could say the same thing about Midnight Oil, you know. Mm-hmm. We're middle class and some of us have got more than one home. Who are we to be singing about these things? So I think the best that we can do is to continue what we've always done, to be as true to ourselves as we can. I was always struck, even in the 70s and 80s, when we met other bands, that they really hadn't thought their politics through a lot. They wanted to stick it to the man. Once they'd stuck it to the man, done the sort of Sid Vicious sneer, they were down at the pub chatting someone up, you know. So (laughs) you've got to be a little more serious about it, a.k.a. Rage Against the Machine, Billy Bragg. Yep. You know, Anna DeFranco, ourselves, and others. There's a category of people who clearly do take it seriously and try to and Absolutely. Try to go, yep. But we are not a majority. I do find that interesting, and you're quite right. I think that uh, that kind of oppositional stance, sticking it to the man, you realise how empty that seems. Weirdly, I've seen that play out through the pandemic with some of those old rockers getting sucked into all the conspiracy or the oh, anti-vax. The anti- yeah. Because it's no. just oppositional. It's like, oh, the man can't tell me what to do. Oh, no, exactly. And then looking around in horror as everyone criticised it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was it that drew you to rock music in the first place then? Oh, gee, we're so far back in the midst of time. <laughs> I can't see the headland for the beach. I know what my answer is, and it's genuine. The key to it is that I loved and still love to sing and to be involved in music mix. Mm. I never thought that I'd be doing anything much more than mucking around on the weekend with a scratch band. Then when I met the Earls, maybe we'd get a couple of records made. You know, we could take them home and stick them up on the mantelpiece and our aunts and uncles could say, oh, look at what, you know, Johnny does. So there wasn't any dream of conquering the world or being chart toppers or having people give you money to play music. Even that idea is still pretty wonderful, you know. And then the extraordinary serendipity, if you like, good fortune, luck, happenstance, whatever it is, that brought us as a group of individuals together. Mm-hmm. But the songwriting gifts that the band has, Rob and Jim, just always producing and coming up with ideas and songs that Midnight Oil then gets its teeth into and morph into what is our character, finding people that we're prepared to walk out, take a stand on matters of principle. I mean, it sounds a little bit high and mighty, but when you're dealing in the modern world, all of us have got some sort of interaction with governments or business or corporations or rules or regulations. In order to shape and create your own sense and your own identity, you have to do it without someone telling you what to do. And in the music industry, people are always telling you what to do, and sometimes they own part of what you do. We didn't go down that road. Very stubborn, very single-minded about what we did. And I like that freedom for us to do that. And the sound that we were making was exciting for me. Mm-hmm. And it was keeping me off the streets. It was keeping me out of the law. I didn't yep. expect it to last for 50 years. That's the only thing. <laughs> I would like to talk about your political career and when you joined the Labour Party, which became a shock to many people. When you did that, were you more worried about people dismissing you for being a rocker or were you worried about your fans feeling abandoned because they preferred you to stay a rocker and not a politician? I suppose there's not something very rock and roll about joining the Labour Party, I suppose, is there? No, it's not rock and roll at all. I wasn't worried about either of those things. I knew that some people would be cheering and others would be booing. And I knew that people who had a surplus interest in politics and what goes on would see it as an anathema to being um, a singer and a writer on the stage of Midnight Oil. Yep. But if you follow Midnight Oil closely and you saw what we had done up to that point in time, what already 
done a lot of activism by then as well. Mm-hmm. It should have made a great deal of sense. Yeah. And in terms of the values set, there's never going to be a perfect fit for somebody who's strongly an individual mm-hmm. go into a mainstream political party, but the values fit was much closer in Labor than it would have been anywhere else, and I had strong associations with Labor, which went back years and years. Sure. And I'm a team player, you know. Mm-hmm. Midnight Oil's a collective. It's not one person telling everybody else what to do mm. or just making speeches and then spearing off to have a surf. It's mm-hmm. a genuine collective, and I believe in collectivism and everybody bringing their skills and benefits to bear. And also, I was a lawyer by training, so I understood how governments work and mm-hmm. obviously cabinet government works. And I was in the cabinet for two terms, which was a, an elevated position in politics to end up as a group of people who were actually running the country. So mm. it's honestly different from being in a rock and roll space. No question about it. But I wasn't worried or let myself be concerned about what others thought about it for one second. If I did that, I could never do anything. I wondered if the changes for you sort of personally is moving from being someone on the outside who can be a little more idealistic to having to be a little pragmatic and to some extent compromised by, as you say, having to be a team player. Was that difficult for you? Did that feel like a change? I don't want to be critical back in my answer to you. I think this is a less than expansive enough frame for what actually happens. Right. So there's so many implications built into this. The first one, obviously, is you can't be an idealist and be in politics. Now, I would argue that a lot of people in politics go in for idealistic reasons and some remain idealists. Mm-hmm. They succeed or fail, whether it's a scarring experience or otherwise, it's not the point. So that's not something which was an issue for me. And I had already negotiated with three prime ministers on international and national environmental legislation, laws, blah. So I was wandering around Canberra with my guitar case slung over my shoulder going, wow, everybody looks so serious. I was <laughs> sure. years down there. Yeah, <laughs> I knew exactly what it was like. Yeah, I didn't know exactly what it would be like to be a minister and have a an department and be in the cabinet. But I had a reasonable idea. I certainly understood the political process relatively well. I'm not saying I knew everything about it, but I went in with the scales off my eyes, no question. Do you see a need for the relationship between politics and people? to change in order to enable the kind of environmental action that, that needs to be seen in the next 10 years? I'm speaking for Australia, and, but this certainly would apply in some other countries. I think that one of the biggest challenges is that the funding mechanisms for democracy permit the buying of invisible or visible influence, and that is a cancer on the system, and apply then where Murdoch's news are an active player in the media market, then apply again some corporate interests for whom their short-term bottom line is of far more importance to them than the long-term consequences of their actions. I'm thinking particularly of fossil fuel companies. Mm -hmm. And that is an extremely toxic combination which can frustrate the business of government and reform. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, this is a very heretical view, which people don't want to hear, but it's the truth from my, from my perspective particularly. Mm-hmm. And this is partly what resistance is about, is that baby boomers are good at, at saying what they don't like and complaining about things that they disagree with, but they're much less inclined to give up their comfortable place on the couch and go and do something about it. Lobbying politicians or standing for office themselves or forming political parties. If you look at the circus that we have unfolding in the States at the moment, and equally in part of Australia as well now, 
It's essentially extreme disenfranchised voices, either right across to the left or right across to the right, mm. are the ones who are mounting the energy. And everybody else is sitting back now. Mark, you, COVID's been there, but everybody else is sitting back and thinking, oh, okay, that's just a rabble and that's politics and that's the way the world is and stuff. So, but we all make our own world and you only make it if you're in it and you're doing things with it. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be Sir Galahad or Lady Galahad mounting a charger on the front steps of Parliament House. You can be doing it in your street or your neighbourhood, in your community, in your school, wherever it might be. But you've got to care. You've got to be active. You can't be apathetic. I'm not telling people what they should or shouldn't be, but if you want to understand why this doesn't quite work, it's just made up of people. Right. You can create another system, but it's still made up of people. And yep. people infuse systems with integrity and with purpose if enough of them are demanding that and aren't expecting that. And I think we're seeing some evidence of that happening. I think there are some positive signs, genuine grassroots and community activity and involvement. And certainly communities can shape their lives in the local setting to a much greater extent than they could previously, simply because they're much better informed. They're quite often more skilled. And for governments or local councils or whoever have statutory responsibilities or roles, they have to take them into account. And so they need to listen to them when they step up and say, well, we don't want you to do something over there because we think that wetland's pretty good as it is. At this stage of history, what's good activism looking like to you? So I think effective activism for organisations is to have a robust theory of change a commitment to non-violent direct action when necessary and a strategic sense of building relationships, alliances and communicating openly and honestly with people. I think individually activism is about losing the sense of who you are as an individual and developing and working at being much more detached about your role and then in that detachment thinking clearly about where you literally may or may not be able to make a difference, however small and then going out and doing that, and then building on that. Most successful activists start off as volunteers or are just simply decided that they've had enough of something and they just show up somewhere and roll up their sleeves and decide they want to get involved and do something. That group of people develop good do-it-yourself skills, and that group of people, when they join with one another, can become a very potent and a very productive force. Mm, I think it's a great description. Thanks, Peter. Single Rising Seas challenges people to think about their own legacy, think about how we explain ourselves to the future generation of children. Do you think, looking back, that you'll feel able to say that you did enough, that you did what you could? Oh, that's a question that haunts me and <laughs> haunts others. Sure. You know? And I think the short answer is probably no. One could always do more. I mean, it reminds me of this expression, is I've got a feeling Mother Teresa or someone like that, who was asked, you know, how should I think about charity or how should I think about helping the poor? And the answer was give until it hurts and then give some more. <laughs> well, very few of us can achieve that level of humanitarian magnanimity, but within our reach of our own character and our own sense of who we are and what we're doing, I think if I look back, I probably can sometimes when I could have found more. I am mm. very aware that there are really difficult obstacles in the path for community activists and for people who want to be active either in formal politics or outside of it. One of them is burnout, where people throw themselves at something at such a level and they may have some great short-term successes, they may have some shopping to pizza, they may have a bit of each, but then they literally burn themselves out and it can take years to recover. I think of forest activists would spend a lot of time on the front line in Australia in the 80s and 90s. I mean, Indigenous activists would be another one. It just seems wherever they turn, they've got difficult uh, mountains of problems and challenges to, to overcome. 
The other issue is hero complex or a lack of sufficient detachment, a lack of understanding that it's actually not about you as an individual at all. It's certainly not about me as an individual. It's about how we best join together and bring our collective strengths and skills into play in a place where we know and we can sense and feel that we're able to move forward. That requires a lot of thinking and sometimes quite a lot of hard work on our parts. And I don't think in a lifetime you ever really stop trying to figure out how to do that better. Mm -hmm. I guess considering that sense of burnout and despair, I feel that pervades a lot of discussions around climate change. Are there things in terms of uh, whether it's mobilising action on climate and environmental repair or just turning the ship around more broadly, do you have hope, other things that inspire you? I went into the parliament 15 years ago, Mm. in part because of this issue. The Conservative government of the day wouldn't take the climate crisis seriously. Mm. I wanted to be a part of a government that did. Kevin Rudd, who was the Prime Minister, called it the greatest moral challenge of our time. And we instituted the carbon tax and we started on that path. Our political opponents came back six years later and pulled it apart. And that was a defining and very tragic moment in Australia's political life. Having said that, being able to pull the levers of change for governments in particular in order to do what's necessary to hold global heating to tolerable levels is still within our reach. But it will require some massive step forwards and some ambition and some bravery and extraordinary mobilisation on the ground of people to make sure that that's what governments do. And I'm optimistic that we know enough about the issue, that there are solutions and that we can see clearly what the obstacles in the way are. Am I optimistic about our capacity to get there in time? Much less so, because we've been wrestling with this issue for a long time. Mm. And either human greed or national self-interest are extremely powerful forces, and they will require some massive transforming and almost earth-shaking actions on the part of, of citizens and human populations to safeguard their earth. But we've really got no choice. And the more we know and understand about the size of the challenge, the more easily we can see and get a sense of what it is we need to do. But that part of it can be very hard, and that's where the boomers in particular have the greatest responsibility because they're generally of reasonable means, not always, of course, but generally. It's not as though they're struggling to get fresh water into a cup or a bit of food on their plate every day. And we, as a collective generation of baby boomers, we have been selfish, We've been self-centred, we've allowed narcissism and competition and flashy new everythings to become the prevailing paradigm. I've got to get real. Mm. I do know in campaigns that I've been involved in that have been successful, quite often just before you sort of turn the corner or you get the breakthrough, you don't sour. Right. And you sort of forget that there's a whole lot of other people who are probably beaving away wanted to do the same things you are. And there are a lot of people, most young people, have got climate in their frame, whether they're lawyers, scientists, teachers, doctors, whatever. Thanks for tuning in to the Dumbo Feather podcast. Peter Garrett has a new album out with Midnight Oil called Resist. We have a magazine out called Systems Change. This podcast was brought to you by Puckers Nighttime Teas. Drift off to sleep with a selection of expertly blended teas. Now available 
in Not Time Berry.